Sorry, I had to give Lee a performance review right there. So. Yeah, he's doing well. It was a good one. It was a good one. Um, but before we dive into the scriptures, um, I, th- there is something I just wanted to mention and to, to celebrate together as a community that I thought was exciting. Um, our drummer, Greg, right here, right there, he was on the Jimmy Kimmel show this week. Um, yeah. It was a reminder to me of, yes, I am back in the LA area. These are things that happen in people's lives here. But oddly enough, he wasn't drumming. He was doing stand-up comedy. So if you see him, tell him to say something funny over and over again until he does. I'm kidding. He was doing his drumming. He's very, very good. Uh, but that's, that's great. And yeah. So I am Pastor John, in case I haven't met you yet. And we're going through our Advent series entitled The Unexpected, where we're looking at some unexpected attributes to Matthew chapter 1, the first half of Matthew chapter 1, which is Matthew's genealogy, this long list of names. And we've broken it up into three sections, and this week is our third week, and this is our last week focused on the genealogy in Matthew. And this week, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So I invite you to hear the word of God. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Selathiel, and Selathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and please join me in prayer. Lord, we come to your text your scriptures, to this passage written by Matthew through the power of your Holy Spirit, we come here hoping to be surprised, to see something unexpected that might show us a glimpse of who you are, that we might learn better what to expect from you. So speak to us now through this list of names, through the words of Matthew. Speak to us so we can place our trust in you, place our hope in you, place our faith in you, and be your people in this world. Speak to us now, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, as I said, we're looking for unexpected things here in Matthew chapter 1, and there are a number of unexpected things here. Throughout this genealogy, Matthew has tweaked things here and there. Not to pull one over on anybody, but to raise people's eyebrows, to send a message, to teach about what God was doing. Remember this genealogy, it is really the introduction to the New Testament. It's preparing us, the readers, for Jesus, getting us ready for Jesus to come, to arrive, both in the world and our own lives, and to come at the end of time when we know Jesus will return. That's the purpose here. And Matthew has put small little unexpected things in here. 
And in this third section, one of the main things that Matthew has done is that he's omitted certain kings. He's omitted names that should be here. He's actually done this a few times throughout this genealogy. In the second section here, after Joram, which is one of the kings he lists, he then lists another king. But after Joram, it should actually be Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Three kings that Matthew just excludes. Their stories actually are told in three chapters in the book of 2 Chronicles. It's a significant amount of time, but Matthew skips over it. He's making a statement here. He also, he leaves out Jehoiakim, who was before Jehoiakim. That's really confusing, by the way. Jehoiakim was before Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. I don't know how to pronounce any of these names, as I've said. I'm doing the best I can. Apparently, Matthew didn't either, because he just crossed that one off. Maybe that's what he's trying to say. But he leaves out this name. Now, he's not trying to pull one over on anybody. Matthew knows that the people who would read this, they would have known the history of these kings. At least some of them would have and would have known right away. He's left some people out. On top of that, though, between, in the third section here, between Zerubbabel and Joseph, which is the entire third section, it should cover about 500 years of time. When you look at the dating in the Bible to when Jesus was born, it should be 500 years there. Matthew only has nine names in that section. You do the math, you realize Matthew is missing about 250 years here. About halfway through. All told, you add it all up, he's missing about 300 years of Israel's history in this genealogy here. And if you think I'm reading into things too much, go look at Luke's genealogy. In Luke's genealogy, we have Zerubbabel, we have Joseph, and we have 18 names in between them. It's double. But Matthew really wanted it to be nine. What's Matthew doing here? Why is he omitting all of this? Now, I just have to say, I have had a few people ask me, wait, Matthew could just do that? He could just make changes? And I want to just reiterate here, Matthew could do that. Matthew wasn't trying to give a perfect chronology of Jesus' birth here. He's trying to teach the early church about what to expect from God. And Matthew is assuming that the people who would be listening to this for the first time, they would know this history. They would know what he was doing. He's not trying to trick anyone. He's teaching a lesson. And it's actually been long acknowledged that this is what Matthew was doing. John Calvin, way back when in the 1500s, pointed out, 1500s, that is correct. Uh, John Calvin pointed out that Matthew allows himself to cut some kings out of the series in order to aid the reader's memory. This was actually pretty normal in writing in the Bible. Matthew's trying to teach something here. He's trying to show a lesson. And if you get to the end of the genealogy there in verse 17, Matthew's really focused on there being three sets of 14 generations. 
He wants it to be perfectly neat. He wants it to be orderly. Matthew wants there to be three sets of 14 generations. Even when the math doesn't actually add up, he wants the readers to understand this was an orderly process. Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar, I think he captures best what Matthew's trying to do here. Dale Bruner writes that Matthew believes that this best makes the point of God's ordering and gracious providence. Matthew is taking this messy, messy, messy history. Go look at the kings. Go read 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Realize how messy and how tragic and how downright horrible some of these kings were and all of this history. And Matthew is taking that messiness and showing order. Matthew's taking that tragedy and showing God's purposes. That God will create order out of anything and ultimately bring Jesus out of that messiness. And that's where I think Dale Bruner really captures it perfectly with that word providence. Providence is kind of an ancient term. It's one of those terms that can fade away in our memories because it has to do more with like schools and streets and towns than in our day-to-day experience. But when we're talking about the idea of providence, what we're really talking about, I believe, is God's protective care. It's God protecting. It's God working through history. It's God working to bring order out of chaos. It's God working through the events of history, working through the events of our lives, working throughout the world to provide, to protect, to care, to move this world along God's path with a plan in sight. God's protection. God's protective care. That's the biblical idea of providence. And it's one I think we should all take some rest in. Now, providence, the whole idea, the concept that Matthew is, I believe, raising here. I want to say a couple things it isn't, first off, or at least a couple things that it works against. You may have heard of deism. It's a, it's a philosophy. It's the idea, basically, that God is a distant God sets the world in order and just kind of steps back and lets things run. It's actually more common than you think. People won't use the term deism, but this big idea of a distant God who's up in the heavens just kind of watching us without any sort of care or concern or just kind of glancing at us. That's the way a lot of people talk about God these days. Providence runs directly counter to that idea. Because the biblical God is not a God who doesn't care, is not a God who's distant. The biblical God is a God who reaches down into history, who is in relationship with an actual people, who sets those people up so that they can be distinct and unique so people can know who this God is. It's a God who passionately cares about the world, who gets angry, who gets sad. It's a God who has a range of emotions because God is so interactive with this world. Read the prophets and you realize Israel could affect God's emotions. That's the clear picture of God. So the idea that God just sets things in motions and steps back, 
That's what providence argues against, and that's what Matthew is helping us to understand. That is not the God that is in the Bible, the God that we worship. The other thing that the idea of providence runs up against, though, is this saying, and some of you may have said this, some of you may believe this, and I'm going to push on this right now. I want to prepare you, okay? Don't take offense, please. But the saying, everything happens for a reason. I personally believe we as Christians need to let go of that. And let me just state what I mean here. Let me just state too the the emotional impact of that phrase. If you have ever, ever experienced a tragic loss or a death of a loved one, and you are in the middle of the grief and somebody walks up to you and says, everything happens for a reason, gosh, does that hurt. I lost a friend of mine. He, he took his own life. I've mentioned this before. And somebody said to me far too soon, everything happens for a reason in response to that. It hurt. I don't believe that that's what providence teaches us. I don't believe that's what the Bible is teaching us. And I think when we say that, we have a naive view of sin in the world. Because the truth is, sin entered into the world, and with sin came a level of chaos. And chaos has no reason. Chaos is uncertainty. Chaos is pain. Chaos is irrational. It has no reason. And it causes things in our lives that are painful, that cause grief. So to say everything has a reason... It means then that chaos has a reason when it, by definition, doesn't and it can't. I think it also makes us forget one of the main things God was doing throughout history was overcoming chaos and disorder. Those bad things, those tragic things that happen in a person's life, I don't believe God causes those. I don't believe God's trying to teach you some deep lesson. That's not what providence teaches us. What providence teaches us is that God is in the midst of this world, working alongside us, suffering alongside of us, helping to overcome chaos, overcome sin, overcome death, which is why Jesus went to the cross. But God is there alongside each and every one of us, suffering with us. Sometimes I think things happen not because there was a reason, but because sin is in this world. And it's a reminder of all that God is doing and all that God is trying to overcome. So I think we have to let go of that idea. Whenever we're talking about providence, whenever we're talking about God, sometimes things happen that are just random. And that's why we need a savior. It's at least one of the reasons that we need a savior. So I've said a couple times here now what, providence isn't and what it's working against. So let me just lift up a positive definition here. And it comes from the Bible, believe it or not. I hope you believe it. Romans 8.28, that classic verse, for God works all things toward good. That I think is a great summary of providence. Because it doesn't say God causes all things. And maybe in a sense God does but it recognizes that there are some things that God has to work on to make them good. Some events, some memories in our lives, God has to work on them to make them good and God is working on them. 
Providence is the idea of God at work in this world. Making all that was bad, good. Making all that was tragic to be rejoicing. Making all that was chaotic to be ordered. That, I think, is the beauty of providence. That's, I think, what it teaches us. And I think that's what Matthew is trying to help us understand here. Through this messy, messy history of Israel, good will come. Good did come. Jesus was born because God was at work there. Now, I just have to address what I think might be an elephant for some people in the room. When you think about providence, you think about God working towards making things all good. That question, why do bad things happen then? Why do tragic things happen? Why does this world look the way that it does so much? Now, people have spent 2,000 years trying to find answers to that. And I think I actually have the best answer. Okay? I think this is the best answer that we could give to that question. I don't know. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. I don't know. None of us actually knows. And you could try to give somebody some long, complicated, philosophical answer. And maybe for some people that helps, but for the majority of people, I don't think that's going to be the most helpful thing. But what is so fascinating is that when you read the New Testament, that's not a question that they were too concerned with. This question of why does God allow bad things, it doesn't really show up in the New Testament. And it's not that they weren't aware of bad things. They weren't aware of tragic things. I mean, Matthew, the history he's talking about here with these kings, it was tragic. It was very, very tragic. And Matthew's community, the first readers of this, they would have experienced persecution unlike anything most of us in this room would ever experience. They knew that bad things happened. They knew that tragedies happened. That question of why do bad things happen then if God's working towards good, it's a very recent question. The New Testament doesn't really care all that much about that question. It just assumes bad things do happen. That sin has entered into this world, bad things do happen. But more than anything else, what it does the New Testament, the gospel, this message, it points us to the God who is working against those tragic things. It reveals to us the God who is working in history to overcome any sort of tragedy. And it pushes our eyes towards Jesus, the one who would suffer, who would experience one of the most tragic deaths a person could experience. So that tragedy would one day end for each and every one of us. The Bible isn't concerned with why do bad things happen. It's more concerned with what has God done about it. And for us as Christians, I think that's the question we should be more concerned with also. What has God done about it? According to Matthew, God delivered Jesus to us. According to the New Testament, Jesus went to the cross and Jesus was resurrected. And according to the New Testament, because of that, we have hope that God is at work in this world. Hope that God will overcome all those things. And hope that for each and every one of us, God is at work in your life. This idea of providence that I think Matthew is pointing us to. Matthew wouldn't use that word, obviously, because that's an English term. But this idea that God is at work in history, protecting, caring, 
Matthew wants us to understand it happens in history, but it happens in your life also. Whatever it is you are experiencing, God is at work. May we place our hope and faith in Jesus, trusting in the character of God. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are at work in this world. We thank you that you are not distant, that you are passionately caring, protecting the people you love, that you care about your creation. We care that you are a God that is affected by the things that we do and the things that happens in our li- happen in our lives. Help us to trust in you. Help us to see you at work in this world. And help us to be so rooted in that hope that we can't help but share it with all those that we know who are suffering, Lord. Help us to come alongside those who are grieving, those who are experiencing suffering, Lord. And help us to point them to you.
melody of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you
Yeah.